Hey, everyone. Welcome to Lessons with Mike. My guest today is Benjamin. Hi there. My name is uh, Benjamin Muller. I'm a paleontologist, and presumably I'm here because uh, we would like to uh, access some forbidden knowledge on the ancient dead. Yes, we would. We're going to dig delve deep into the catacombs of the forbidden knowledge and find some stuff uh, i don't know if you know this there's a be- there's a belief that's coming back that dinosaurs are just not even real uh perpetuated lies by satan meant to tempt you away from god so we're here to dispel oh, what that. i've never heard that that is You've never, never a thing that? that's ever been said to me by so, relatives I- uh <laughs> Yeah, we go, you know, when we take video and stuff and and share photographs of doing the process of doing, um, you know, the field expedition, all of the prospecting that we have to do, we actually go there a week beforehand and like place everything in exactly where we think, you know, we'll find it again. And we pick all these extremely inconvenient places like halfway up, you know, a a 10 foot sheer wall of rock that's not going to move. And uh, we definitely pour concrete over stuff so that we have to use drills to take it out because if there's anything we hate, it's in it's, it's efficiency. We really want this to be a slow process. Um, We love it when work doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And you got to make it tough. If you made it too easy, it's too obvious, right? Yeah. So, you just recently got back from a big excavation, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I just spent two weeks, um, last week of May, uh, part of the first week of June, out uh, in northwestern New Mexico in what we call the San Juan Basin. Um, other people call it the San Juan Basin, too, but <laughs> just to be clear. No, just um, you specifically came up with that name. <laughs> yeah, we, and then somehow it ended up as an actual geographic feature in the state of New Mexico. So that, that goes to show my arcane powers, I think. Yeah, you have this... It's incredible ability to just rename the landscape to suit your needs. It's incredible, really. Yeah. Um, so, and anyway, it's basically the Four Corners area of New Mexico. If you know where like Shiprock is, um, yes. or if you've ever like gone to Turango and then just driven south for several hours, you'd eventually kind of end up in that area. So it's very high elevation. It's above seven thousand feet. I forget the exact elevation, but um, you know the temperature up there in, yeah, in the period not, that we were at yeah. um it was in like the high 80s for a lot of it which you wouldn't expect to be much of a problem especially you know given i live in arizona and here you know it it, it gets into the 120s sometimes so you would think that high to. 80s would be nothing um when you're at seven thousand feet and there's barely any atmosphere to protect you from the sun it it matters a lot <laughs> is what i'll say <laughs> Yeah, that does not sound fun. Oh, man. But did you find anything while you were out there? Yeah, we found a ton of stuff. Um, so to give some background, uh, I'm working in what's called the Menifee Formation. Um, it's somewhere between 78.5 and 84 million years old. Um, it's what we call the uh, beginning part of the Campanian stage of the Cretaceous. Um, so if you're familiar with, uh, for example, Prehistoric Planet, that just came out. Um, everything in that show is focused on 66 million years ago, a stage called the Maastrichtian. And the Campanian comes right before that. So I'm, we basically work in the package of time that is the prequel to the period of dinosaur history everyone's super familiar with, where Tyrannosaurus, Triceratops, um, Pachycephalosaurus, Atlantosaurus, all those things, Alamosaurus, and then at the very end, you've got the, uh, the impact event, and everybody knows about that, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so what type of dinosaurs do you typically discover? 
Um, most of what's there, and we are still trying to piece together the ecology. Um, it's been about 12 years of work, so we've got a pretty good idea of what's there, but we're still trying to fill in a few missing gaps. Um, mostly what we see are um, what appear to be the direct predecessors to those uh, really well-known animals. So we don't have Triceratops, but we do have um, an earlier smaller form called Menophyceratops, and there's possibly several types of horned dinosaurs we still need to um, still need to sort that out. We don't have, you know, the mega colossal Edmontosaurus, but we do have an earlier form called Ornatops. Um, we don't have Ankylosaurus, but we do have an earlier form called Invictarx, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, and that's one key difference is that during the Campanian, we don't have any Ankylosaurus. So if you're familiar with um, the armored dinosaurs that have a big club at the end of the tail, um, and you're welcome to chime in and explain like what your level of familiarity with this stuff oh, yeah. is. When you finish up, we'll get to that for sure. But I want to okay. finish this because this is some good stuff. Yeah. So um, instead of those, uh, those are that's part of the Ankylosaurid family. Um, and then you have the Notosaurs. And, and Notosauridae may have just been thrown out actually in the past week. But until I read that paper, I'm going to keep using the term. Mm -hmm. um, they don't have clubs at the end of their tails, but they do tend to have spikes projecting off of the shoulders. And they also have this kind of tessellated armor around the hips. I like to call a bone skirt. Because it kind of, it, it's like this circular, almost pebbly texture that goes just around the hips. And it's clearly there for um, defense because it's a sort of squat animal. And um, if you're running away from a predator, your hips, which are a pretty wide area, are going to be vulnerable. That's true. Um, yeah. And that, like, we don't, one more, we don't have, um, we don't have Tyrannosaurus rex that shows up again um, millions of years after this, uh, five to six million years later. Um, but we do have, a, again, a precursor called Dynamo Terror. And Dynamo Terror is smaller than T-Rex, um, and it's part of a transition between the earlier forms of Tyrannosaurus, which were small-bodied um, and actually quite agile. Um, and then sometime around this period, because the really big carnivorous dinosaurs that dominated North America in the early Cretaceous, they go extinct. Sometime during this period, they disappear. And Tyrannosaurus basically, in their adult stage, expand to fill that enormous gap of, of macro predator. Um, so in, in late Tyrannosaurus, like T-Rex and Dynamo Terror, most likely, the, the, basically the juveniles keep their ecological role as medium-sized, agile predators. And then as they grow, they take up an entirely new ecological niche of this mega predator that is probably covering very long distances um, it's almost certainly scavenging. People bicker about that a lot, but it's really not a controversial thing. You know, an animal that needs to make up, you don't even need want to know how many calories and grams of protein a day is is going to eat whatever it comes across. So whether that be through hunting or scavenging, but it, it's a very large number. Tyrannosaurus is, is a huge, one of the largest land predators that ever existed. So it's going to have to eat whatever. It doesn't really get to be picky. It, it eats what it eats. Right. So anyway, that's my intro. Um. <laughs> Great intro. Uh, so I recognized a lot of those names. A few of them I didn't, but I'll give you a brief background on on my knowledge about dinosaurs. I loved dinosaurs growing up. Uh, as a kid, I wanted to be a paleontologist. thought that'd be the, the coolest thing ever. I watched all the dinosaur shows. I read all the dinosaur books. But as I grew older, I redeveloped an interest in this. And I've been researching this. You obviously know much more about it than me because you've been you've been in the field working on this. And one of my my actually my favorite thing that I own is my wedding ring, which is actually made out of fossilized dinosaur 
wow. yeah, it's the coolest thing ever. Um, they actually sent me a, I forget the name of the company, but they sent me a map of where the bones were dug and said, your fossil ring has been dug in this location. It was a place, it was a mountain range in Utah on a cliffside where they dug it up. Hmm. And these are the dinosaurs that have been found here. So your fossil could potentially be any of these. I choose to believe that it is a sauropod because those are those have always been my favorites. Sure. But it is such a small fragment. There's really no way to know. Yeah. Um, and, and Utah is such a huge place as far as um, uh, Mesozoic geology. Um, there are, I, I can't even count how many dozens of, of dinosaur species that have been named out of Utah um, in just the last 20 or 30 years or so. Um, and there is one guy basically responsible for that, Dr. Jim Kirkland, and he's a, mm -hmm. a wonderful dude. Um, if you look him up, he's very active on social media and he will constantly post updates on like, yeah, I've got this thing. It's sitting in a box. Someone should describe it someday. Um, dude's just got new dinosaurs falling out of cabinets. I love that. I love that the, every as time progresses, we know more and more because, you know, 10 years ago, you would have thought, oh, we've already discovered them. I'll know we keep finding more. Right. Yeah, that's a big misconception that I'm. I could not be more urgent to quash is the idea that paleontology is kind of a solved science um, mm -hmm. that we basically know everything. There's only so many animals that are out there. The ones that this is a big one. The ones that we keep finding look very similar to the old ones, which people take as um, evidence that we've basically we've basically figured it out. Right. We've got the idea. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, first of all, a lot of living animals, if you were just looking at their skeletons, um, look very similar and you would not necessarily be able to tell them apart, right? It's, it's a big part of modern animal classification, doing a mixture of um, what we call morphological analysis to look at shapes of the bones and uh, locations of certain like muscle scars and things like that to uh, discriminate species and genera and families and that kind of thing. It's a combination of physical traits and genetic information, because once we were able to sequence DNA of living animals, not dinosaurs, to be clear, um, it became very clear that actually there's a lot of hidden diversity that you can't even tell based off of skeletal features either. Um, and so in reality, there are millions of species of dinosaurs, most of which we'll never be able to tell apart. So um, even if you're of the opinion that like eh, a lot of them look similar, they could be basically the same thing. Um, I maintain that we are severely underestimating their true diversity. We, we know a genuinely very, very, very small amount um, about the animals that lived uh, in, in any period of time where fossilization can occur. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and I've got two follow-ups to that. It's very interesting because sure. fossilization is so difficult to occur. Most creatures that existed might not have any fossils at all to begin with. So right. what we're looking at in the fossil record is only a small percentage of the creatures that could have existed during that time. Like, let's say you have a creature that lived in a more marshy environment where it couldn't have been fossilized, then we'd have no way of knowing it existed or a creature that was primarily cartilage based or a creature that lived in the ocean. Uh, a lot of fish, for instance, that don't really get in areas where they could be fossilized. So there's a large percentage of creatures that we just will never know existed. Right. Right. Yeah. Fossilization is a very rare occurrence. It's very special every time you find a fossil. Um, so it's, it's all got inherent value in my eyes, but, um, Yes, it's only a very small portion 
of of what is recovered um and and i'll i'll kind of elaborate on what you were talking about in in marshes and and floodplains and things like that those actually tend to be uh, very excellent places for fossil preservation um mm. what you want is um basically if there's a high sediment load in in those streams in that water um and it's moving rapidly enough that it can dump that sediment on top of you know something that has died and is now at the bottom of the riverbed um, that's going to give you really good chances of being preserved. Um, bogs are also excellent for that kind of thing. Um, but for example, think about all of the animals and the unique ecosystems that live up in mountains, right? Mm -hmm. um, where I live in Southern Arizona, we have what are called the Sky Islands, which are, it's this mountain range that goes from Southern Arizona into Northern Mexico that, you know, you have in a 30 minute drive from the bottom of the top of say Tucson to the top of Mount Lemmon, you're going thousands of feet higher and you completely change biomes, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so these areas are uh, places of refuge for species that used to live uh, much more widely down in the lower basins during like the end of the last ice age. And when, um, you know, it, it started to get hotter and drier in the valleys, these species were forced to migrate up into the Sky Islands. Um, so someone looking at the fossil history of Southern Arizona 50 million years in the future, they're probably going to get a lot of fossils of things down here in the basin. But what's up in the mountains is much less likely to be found because it's all basically, um, there's not a lot of, there's basically no sediment deposition that happens in mountains, basically. You have to have really unique circumstances. Um, That's interesting. I, I wouldn't have thought that. That's, see, I learned, I learned something today. It's very interesting. Yeah. Um, so your your best bet actually is if you have a cave system, um, caves actually are very important for fossilization um, or, or kind of how we've been able to piece together the fossil history of life on this earth, because there are very old cave systems. Um, there's a really famous one in Oklahoma called Richard Spur that uh, is a basically a natural trap that preserves animals that are older than dinosaurs, stuff like Captorhinus, which are these mm -hmm. weird kind of peg teeth uh peg tooth lizards. Okay. Um, so we've, and, and that goes all the way to like in the last ice age, again, here in Arizona, we have places like Karchner's caverns and uh, uh, caves in the Grand Canyon where um, entire animals, including ground sloths, they die, they fall in there and they're not affected by outside temperature fluctuations. So the bones are preserved very well and sometimes with soft tissue, sometimes with uh, fecal tissue. Um, oh, wow stuff stuff like that so we've been able to do studies on the diet of ground sloths based off of stuff preserved in caves um, but then basically your only other hope is uh, for example when we have a big wildfire which does happen down here um, you know you have a big burn up on the mountain and when the rains come after fire season is over it accumulates these big uh, charcoalized logs and all the bones of things that didn't make it and because there's a lot less plants and vegetation holding the ground together they turn into the sludge and they flow uh, down into the lower basin. So here in, in Tucson, we were having our arroyos filled up with this kind of black, uh, you know, sort of muddy water that was full of charcoal and undoubtedly bones of other things. Mm -hmm. um, so those are kind of two of the ways that we would learn about the mountain ecosystem. But then you have to consider would, you know, paleontologists 50 million years from now be able to discern these animals come from a nearby high elevation locality. They did not inhabit the lower valley. They were just preserved here. 
right? Mm-hmm. So there's a yeah. lot of, of critical thinking and, and investigating your inferences and the assumptions you're making that goes into this work. That gives me another point I want to mention, but we're going to go back to the other one I had first before we get to the second one. So okay. okay. you were talking earlier about how the skeletal remains and the fossilized remains might look the same, but we have no way of knowing what they actually look like. I'm sure you're familiar with the meme where it's like, oh, a hippo skeleton, what the hippo actually looked like, how a paleontologist sees the hippo and they right. shrink wrap it. Yeah. yeah. You might so, imagine we don't love that meme. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're not a fan of it. Uh, um, because there are a lot of genuinely very well-trained anatomists. Um, actually, a lot of people who do paleontology are making their money and paying their bills as uh, doctors or um, professors of anatomy, basically. And so these are people who do spend a lot of time dissecting animals, looking at, again, the placement of where muscle scars go. And that leads you to doing things like muscular reconstructions. And then so, you know, we we do have ways of telling apart, okay, this is an area where there's going to be a very thin layer of skin, um, not let not much you know, subdermal fat or anything like that versus here's an area where you have a major muscle group that's going to bulge out and you're not going to be able to see the skeletal structure underneath. Um, That criticism is definitely true of older paleo reconstructions. Um, You look at stuff done in the uh, 20th century, especially, and you will see what we call shrink wrapping, which is where it looks like the skin layer added onto the animal is just this very thin plastic veneer um, over the bone. So it, it, you know, you can look at a dinosaur's face and still see, we call the fenestra, which are those holes in the skull, those kind of openings. Um, uh, fenestrum is Latin for window. So it's like the windows on the skull that you can see through. Um, in a lot of what we would call a shrink wrapped reconstruction, you would be able to see like looking at the animal as if it's paper thin and there's a light on the other side, like right, see right through the nose, right through the sinus cavity, Um, right through the ear, stuff like that. Um, So there is definitely a a conscious effort to pay more attention um, to what living animals look like and and apply those standards. It is is not necessarily true that if, I mean, there are fossil hippos and part, I mean, part of the reason why we know what they look like is because we have their modern relatives. And so we can, we can do a direct comparison. It's true that with animals that we don't have you know, any living descendant to compare to like a lot of types of dinosaur, right? Um, At that point, there is going to be a fluctuation of plausible interpretations. Um, And I would say it's probably overstated. Um, I'll say it's definitely overstated in the what I'll call the paleo enthusiast community, which are mostly kids on the internet, um, who, you know, like to play up drama. And when there's a new reconstruction of a certain animal they like to kind of overplay the the chaos that's supposed to ensue right we thought we knew everything right especially the spinosaurus right um and so there's there's been no new material spinosaurus officially described in several years and all of the alleged changes made to its skeletal reconstruction and to its life reconstruction are all based off of computer models and studies done on previously released materials. So they are um, differing interpretations of the same thing, Mm -hmm. right? And the most concrete, um, you know, piece of evidence that we have is actual fossil. So, um, yeah, Spinosaurus is, is again, in one of these unique situations because it's very unlike anything that's alive today so we don't have any great modern analogs 
for figuring out what it would have looked like. And if um, I'm not mistaken, there, there aren't even very many fossils of it to begin with that have been found. There are not. Um, and there are even fewer that are officially described. So we work on kind of a um, an honor system in science, basically, where um, there's a there's a canon kind of I'm going to use this metaphor, even though I don't. I don't love it when people say things like I headcanon this in science when they mean like a, uh, a I hypothesis. I don't, I don't love that. Um, I, I was just told that this audience is very Gen Z and for the record, I am also Gen Z, but just, just so we know, I don't love the fact that people do that We will because uh, it gives the, the wrong idea. We're going to change um, the hypothesis in the scientific method to headcanon. To headcanon. Yeah. yeah. And, and your evidence is just vibes. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> You can say it's X or whatever if it's giving and what. Okay. So um, what was I talking about? Spinosaurus. Um, uh, Yeah, we don't know for sure really much about the forearms. um, So that's an area that could definitely be changed. We don't know the exact shape of the spine itself. So even though it has definitely fallen out of vogue to do the kind of half sail that was really popular um, for a very long time. in in favor of the M-shaped sail, we still don't know exactly for sure. There are relatives of Spinosaurus that have, you know, uh, if you look up an animal called Concavenator, you'll see um, something with like a a two-part hip sort of sail that kind of like stops in one way and it it really spikes out. Um, Just really bizarre looking animals with with no, again, nothing like this around today. So... um, yeah, there's there's a lot of plausible interpretations of what the animal could have looked like, but the hard evidence comes from actual fossils, and um, the fossils need to be described in a peer-reviewed journal before they can be considered part of uh, paleontological canon, something that I can uh, publish about in my own publications, right? Um, in order for something to be entered into the quote-unquote canon, it has to be in a public collection. Um, so someone's private fossil collection cannot be published on because there's no way to guarantee um, mu- like uh, an outside visitor's access to the fossil, mm-hmm. right? A lot of public uh, or, or sorry, private collection owners will, um, you know, say like, I'll let anyone who wants to see it come see it. I'll make 3D prints available. But, you know, the the convention is it has to be in a public um, in a public collection because otherwise the results aren't falsifiable. If another scientist can't recreate the study by looking at the exact same bone, doing the exact same, you know, microanatomical detailing and come to the same conclusions, um, your study is not repeatable and it fails at one of the basic scientific merits. Um, and so basically there are a set number of Spinosaurus fossils that one still exist because the original was blown up in World War II. Um, which is a lot more common of a problem than you would think um, doing research on animals named kind of in, in the first quarter of that century, a lot of them were exploded in world war II. believe it or not. Yeah. So the original, what we call the holotype is gone. And so there's been a struggle. It's a very kind of bureaucratic issue that we run to in paleontology, but there has to be basically a designated fossil that is the exemplar of its type. It's a fossil that shows all of the unique anatomical features that make it provably different from other things. So when you're describing a new species, you want to pick the best holotype, something that's going to 
stand up against future scrutiny. You don't want, you don't necessarily want someone to peer review your research and say, actually, this thing is way too similar to something else. So we're going to lump that all into the same species, right? If you're going through the process, the trouble of naming a new thing, you want to do it right. You want to make a designation that makes sense and will last. Um, and if your holotype, <clears throat> for example, is lost or stolen, uh, burned in a fire or exploded, all of which are things that have happened, you run into the issue of having to designate a, a new type specimen, your lectotype, your paratype. There's lots of different words for this stuff. Um, so anyway, there's this, there's this whole, there's this whole thing, um, this whole process that means that not all Spinosaurus fossils that you can literally go see are, you know, studyable. You know, I live in Tucson where the largest fossil show in the world happens every single year. And there are Spinosaurus fossils for sale here that I can see, I can take pictures of, but they can't be published on. Um, unless someone were to buy them and put them in a public museum. But frustratingly, Tucson also doesn't have a natural history museum. Oh, that is so, where I live as a natural history museum. Because paleontology is, you know, the gateway drug of science, it really helps, you know, people who are curious about science who don't necessarily want to study um, dinosaurs. Or in my case, I actually have published more on crocodilians than anything else. Um, it you know, helps people kind of get situated into a scientific space and learning about hypotheses and learning about publications and stuff like that. Um, and not having a museum to go to, not having um, volunteer opportunities. I can't tell you how many people contact me through Reddit and places like that asking, like, where do I go to, to do what I do? You know, they want to come out on tours through the field. Um, and that's a that's a tough thing to handle because we can't necessarily just take strangers to go do field work, right? right there are legal protections. All kinds um, of you have to do, yeah. We have to pull a lot of insurance because this is not necessarily safe work, um, and you know, there's there's all kinds of concerns, and so things are really best handled locally, you know, within the communities these people come from, where they can you know, visit a museum once or twice a month. So people really get to know them, get to know their needs and what they're excited about because there's so much to do under the umbrella of paleontology. You don't have to be someone who knows all kinds of microscopic anatomical details. You don't have to be an artist. You don't have to be a writer. You don't have to do math very well. Um, I will be so honest about the fact that I struggled with math all the way through college. I had to do two semesters of calculus in order to get my degrees. And it was way harder than basically anything else, right? I have a degree in climate science because I wasn't like satisfied being yelled at over like the earth is 6,000 years old and dinosaurs aren't real. I had to pick up another expertise that makes that exact crowd very angry. Um, Gotta make that somehow. <laughs> right. Um, and, that, and all that stuff has been incredibly useful for me as a paleontologist and oh, yeah, as a person sure. trying to navigate the world. Um, but having, yeah, calculus was, was the most difficult thing I had to do. Um, and it is okay if you're not good at that. It's okay if you're not a, a total jack of all trades, because very few people are when you're just starting out, right? Um, you can have a particular interest. You can only really want to do field work. You can only really want to, um, do collections work. You know, you don't have to study things in collections to still help um, take care of them and, and properly house them and stuff like that. So 
paleontology is full of responsibilities and there are not enough people actually doing all those things, but there's somehow even fewer jobs, mm. right? There's, there's so little willingness to actually pay for, um, you know, taking care of this material and making sure it's um, accessible to the public, making sure it's being, you know, properly taken care of. I can't tell you how many collections I've been in where they're, um, they're like, yeah, we just got termites. So we've got, you know, trays kind of sitting out on the floor for now while we fumigate and, um, no, that's, uh, no, it's, I I'll, that no, it's hard. <laughs> it's very difficult. I'll say since today, I think it's today is the 30 year, um, anniversary of the release of Jurassic Park. Um, which is a movie a I coincidence. Did, which, which is a movie I did not see until after I had already done my first dig. Um, so it is, I, I'm young enough that Jurassic Park was really not what got me into dinosaurs, which will make, um, especially like my millennial and Gen X colleagues ex feel extremely old when I say that. <laughs> um, I'll but, tell you what it was for me. Uh, my family thought I was too young to watch Jurassic Park, so it was the land before time for me. Gotcha. Um, I have faint memories of the land before time in it. There was definitely fewer lawyers getting eaten, if I recall. Yeah, um, no, no one was eaten in Land Before Time. There were a lot, lot more musical numbers, though. Gotcha. Yeah, um, yeah, but it's it's a thing that kids are just kind of attracted to um, mm -hmm. because it, I mean, in my case, I I guess I was just looking for something that felt uh, really real, something that I could. That wasn't, you know, tissue deep, something I could really like push on and and find new depths to and encounter the phrase we don't know um, everywhere you go in paleontology. There's there's a question that hasn't been answered yet. And so there's room for a lot of people to be doing this work. It's just that there's no baked in um, economic output that we're di can directly tied to. Right. So paleontology is the um sort of impetus of a multi-billion dollar entertainment industry you know speaking of jurassic park and then every single one of those you know dreadful jurassic world movies makes oh, over so makes over a billion dollars right and not not a not the tiniest fraction of that is money that that is ever going to circulate back somehow into investing in for example training new paleontologists the next generation um you know educational grants and um you know uh, field work expenses because digging uh like like you saw like i was posting about for two weeks um is not only physically taxing it's also not cheap mm -hmm. um you know you have there's all kinds of food and equipment you have to buy um Right, and, and I'm imagining like you're out in the middle of nowhere. You can't just go to the food line and you can't just, you know, heat up some ramen. You have to actually prepare for these things. Yeah. In, in some spaces, you definitely do. Um, one of the reasons I was able to go two straight weeks in that particular area is that we do have dorms. Um, so like having a refrigerator where I can put, you know, a, a block, basically my daily water was something I would just put in the freezer and then pull out. Uh, it was like a two gallon or whatever jug that I would just freeze overnight and then uh, drink during the day as it was thawing. Um, so like, that's what kind of enables you to go multiple weeks doing this kind of extremely strenuous work, hiking basically every single day, all day, sun up to sundown um, in these very hot conditions. 
Um, and, and then, yeah, if you're going somewhere more remote where you don't have electricity, um, where you don't have refrigeration, uh, yeah, you're going to be packing in, um, you know, your, your stoves and, uh, all of your cooking water. Right. Um, so it's, it's, it's definitely something that having experience camping in is also helpful. Um, shamefully, I have to admit that I was an Eagle Scout, um, that got, uh, I got a lot of my experience, um, you know, with, with very basic things in scouts, but I learned way more as a paleontologist. And as a matter of fact, it was always a lot better managed of a space mm-hmm. <laughs> than, than Boy Scouts ever was. Um, and, uh, I, I think I definitely get more out of, um, it's one thing to just kind of hike on a trail aimlessly just to get to the top of the mountain. I never really understood what the appeal was. Um, uh, but when there's fossils on the mountain, right. That's, that's the appeal there. You got to find them. <laughs> right. That's an entirely different thing. But you were mentioning earlier about holotypes and bureaucracy, and that really got me thinking. Uh-huh. In some countries, uh, China, for instance, it's very difficult to get in there and to do these expeditions. So have there been instances that you're aware of where there has been an argument in the community over which uh, fossil to designate as the holotype? And how do those even get resolved? So, um yeah, there's kind of a couple different things in there. Um, first of all, the legal situation for fossils is different in every country. And since paleontology is a global study, um, you know, dinosaurs didn't care about national borders. So there are animals that I would very love to see that would be relevant to my studies, but they happen to be, you know, in a country that is now on the other side of the world. And, um, yeah, there's there's different rules for for every single place. There are countries like like China, like Brazil, um, I believe Argentina as well, um, that do not allow the export of fossils um, because they are considered uh, protected, uh, basically cultural artifacts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's there's because there's been a a long standing issue with these things being smuggled out of the country and sold to, um, for example. Mongolia is one of these places that protects their fossils and uh, an animal that basically only could have come from Mongolia, like might've come from Russia, but almost certainly Mongolia is this animal called Tarbosaurus that was somehow auctioned off to, um, Oh God, what's his name? Nick cage. Oh, so wow. Nick cage gets yes, in possession <laughs> of this Tarbosaurus skeleton. And everyone's like, there's no way he got that legally. Cause there's, there's three countries where you can find Tarbosaurus, uh, China, Mongolia, and Russia. And in two of those three places, you cannot be well, exporting this stuff. I don't know what Russia's law is, but it, it almost certainly didn't come from Russia anyway. Um, yeah. So, so, so that's that. And that makes stuff like the gem show, very interesting because I there is definitely stuff here that is not legal to sell. Um, and basically, you know, when I was a kid, I would go to the show and I would have my, you know, basically my allowance that I had saved up all year on hand specimens, stuff that's like 10, 15 bucks each mm-hmm. um, for stuff to bring home and study. And it was a legitimately really um, important part of me getting more familiar with fossils. Um, so there like is an educational, um, element to the commercial side. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also the fact that like, now I go there and almost everything is so expensive that a student couldn't possibly get their hands on it. Oh, yeah, there's um, no- um it, you see in the news that there's all kinds of high profile auctions 
of big skeletons being auctioned off. Um, and I do know the original owners of Stan, that skeleton that had been auctioned off for, oh wow, uh, I don't even remember how many tens of millions. They were actually one of the first people I ever met in paleontology. Um, and they come down here to Tucson every single year. So um, again, it's, it's a very interesting place to be as a paleontologist. Um, your, your other question about arguing about what's designated as a holotype. Um, more often that takes the form of arguing over which genus is the better description. So with each of these species is basically a set of character, like characteristics. Um, and two genera or two species can claim the same holotype, but have different interpretations. So in a lot of cases, um, the exemplar of that particular group, whatever species or genus it may be, um, people usually don't argue about which one it is. There's usually like a clear, there's like four or five kind of partial skeletons in not great shape and then like one really good one. So everyone designates the really good one as the holotype, but they disagree on um, the, specific, the specificity of it. Right, which set of character of characteristics is more accurate to the animal? Um, they may they may say, well, well, okay, some of these things what we call synapomorphies um, and and autapomorphies in different situations. Um, some of these things might not be this. This is an imagined character, right? This is part. This is taphonomic uh, deformation. Basically, this is a feature that's only there because of the way it fossilized, like the. the the shape of this thing is influenced by the way it was fossilized. It wasn't actually like that in life. So you can't use that as a character to diagnose, right? Um, so there are disagreements about that type of thing. That actually leads into another thing I, I had written down on my little notepad here, because this is something I remember. Uh, Nano Tyrannus no longer exists. Is that correct? Um, that is one of the things that is, I guess, just going to be constantly fought over until the end of time. Okay, um, so that leads to you could have an example where you look at something and designate it as the holotype only later for another paleontologist to come back and say, well, actually this specimen is just the juvenile of this specimen. Right. That, that is the exact nanotyrannus situation. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And the divide, interestingly, um, the input I'll say, um, and I don't know that there's anyone else who would characterize this in this exact way uh, because there's very few people with kind of the proximity, very few academic paleontologists who are this close in proximity to um, the commercial field, again, because I live here in Tucson and I see what they're doing every single year, right? Mm -hmm. um, the commercial paleontologists, um, by and large, are in favor of the nanotyrannus uh, interpretation. And there's two possible reasons for that. A, again, because they do a lot of collection on private land, um, usually they are the ones negotiating um, settlements with uh, ranchers, people who own large tracts of land that, you know, they find a skeleton on, they want to sell it. And so they usually contact these commercial operations because universities, um, it's a little different now, but generally speaking, they're not going to like award you money right to dig it out they may you know send a crew out there they may fund their own expedition but um money is not going to go into your pocket because you found a fossil on on your property um, that's only going to happen in the commercial sense and since a lot of these people are not on the best economic footing it's hard to blame them for the choice that they make they want to sell the fossil mm -hmm. 
Um, but because these commercial outfits are oftentimes not public collections, right? They're private, they're literally private corporations. Um, the fossils that they collect cannot be published on. And so um, I have seen alleged fossils side by side of a Tyrannosaurus rex juvenile arm and a Nanotyrannus lanciensis adult arm side by side. And that is something that, um, as far as I know, most, if not all academic paleontologists have not had the chance to see. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen, you know, lots of these things side by side of just people basically pulling the curtain back and saying, we've got this, we've got this specimen. Um, but because I don't study, I don't study T-Rex, right? I work in the right. Campanian. Mm -hmm. So I can't tell you, having not closely examined the literature and the bones of all these things, yes, I've seen it. I don't really have an opinion on it. Gotcha. Um, and one of the other pl plausible interpretations, not to be, um, you know, too, too dour or assign a motive, I will just say that because these commercial outfits um, they not only sell the fossils, a lot of the times they sell replicas as well. Um, they help supply museums around the world with skeletons. Um, skeletons from animals that can't be published on, ironically. Um, uh, there is, I think, a branding. Uh, I'll say a, an advantage in branding if you have juvenile T-Rex and Nanotyrannus as two different things. You can sell them as different things um so that's all i'll say about that okay um, on the academic side there have been of these specimens that are in public collections there have been exhaustive um studies of those things there's this particular skeleton called jane that has been sliced open i don't even know how many times to look at uh growth rings and academic paleontology is very convinced that nanotyrannus is just a juvenile t-rex because of those studies Mm -hmm. um so of what is in public collections almost certainly there is not a distinct dwarf tyrannosaur of stuff that is in private collections that cannot be studied for various reasons and will not be entered into the quote-unquote canon um, until they enter public collections mm -hmm. like hard to say because mo because the people who would need to see it to be able to to to, to be able to tell don't have access to it mm -hmm. Even from an ecological perspective, the idea of there being because Nanotyrannus, even though it's whether it's a juvenile T. Rex or its own separate thing, it is still significantly large comparatively speaking. So the idea that there is this additional massive carnivore inhabiting the same ecological niche is a little hard for me to believe. But I'm not I'm not the super expert on e ecology and things of that nature. But it's just something that I find a little challenging to believe. Sure, it makes. Well, to be a juvenile let me, let me pose it this way uh, let me turn that idea on its head yeah. so um one of the things that i learned again one of my degrees is ecology and evolutionary biology and one of the things that because we basically only focused on modern ecological diversity mm -hmm. if you look at the world as it is now the idea of having multiple large top predators does seem kind of unfeasible because the ecosystems, the food chains that we are used to seeing tend not to be that complex. Um, but part of that is because human beings have an incredible um, ecological footprint. We remake landscapes on massive scales, not just now, but also, you know, in prehistoric times through, um, through fire, basically. 
um, we have had a massive influence on, you know, the, the landscapes uh, and the ecology basically since we've been around. And before human beings, during times when there weren't mass extinctions going on, um, for example, times like the Cretaceous, there is this huge um, influx of energy. And it's one of the mysteries that we still don't have exactly nailed down is how is it that there's so much primary production? There's so much plant material growing. There's so many animals in such an incredible diversity um, and ecosystems that we actually do know quite a bit about, like the Morrison, um, that classic late Jurassic um, uh, assemblage with Allosaurus, Brontosaurus, Apatosaurus, Brachiosaurus, Stegosaurus, all of these different things, Ceratosaurus, um, so many different types of sauropods, big long-necked animals that would have been eating ungodly amounts of food, giant predators of, of not just Allosaurus, but also the medium-sized ones. There's also Torvosaurus, which is a very large, um, very large predator also in that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Um, there's something about that period in time that made those huge, complex, large-bodied ecosystems possible. Um, and one of the things that I study out in the Menifee Formation, what I was out there looking for and we were able to luckily find, is more evidence of the croc assemblages. There's nowhere in the world today where you find at least three different types of crocs living in the same place. Um, the Everglades in Florida is the only area you can go, as far as I've been able to find in the published literature, where crocs and alligators live in the same place, right? Um, there might be places in like southern Mexico where you have types of caiman and crocs and alligators living in the same place. But for the most part, diversity is quite low. You go back to this relatively poorly sampled section of the Cretaceous, the Menifee Formation. We don't have a lot of really great you know, fossilization there. Um, we have to work really hard to find good examples of fossils to make holotypes, right? So the naming of new animals has, has taken a number of years. Even in a place with this type of preservation, we have three different types of crocs, a very large one, a medium-sized one, and a small one, all living in the same place, clearly distinct species. Um, we go to the Kuiperowitz, which is at the younger side of the Campanian, so closer to like 73 million years old. Um, they have like seven different types of crocs living in the same place. Um, and we're starting to learn more about the diversity of the dinosaurs themselves and finding out that in certain ecosystems, there's, there's not just a horned dinosaur, there's two, possibly four species living at the same time and somehow finding ways to... Um, branch out and not compete with each other. Um, I would say that's a pretty common misconception about evolution. Um, animals are actually modifying in order to, uh, you know, branch out to new niches where there is low competition. Um, and so somehow there is enough room for multiple species of, of very similar things, somehow distinct. Um, and in the case of Hell Creek, this final you know, Northern Laramidian um, ecosystem right before the impact happens. Um, I would say it's not implausible for there to be uh, both a very large macro predator and a, in the case of Natatoranus, it obviously would have been very large, but a kind of medium-sized predator. 
Um, and the reason I don't find that implausible is because what we know of what's called Tyrannosaur ontogeny, um, the way that they change throughout their life cycle, what that tells us is that they effectively did take up multiple ecological roles throughout their lives, right? Um, I believe I mentioned something about this at the very beginning of the podcast, um, where the young are very different in shape, so similar so different, in fact, that people will make the argument that they're a different species, right? Um, and because form follows function, um, or function follows form, we can infer that they had a very different life cycle, or a very different kind of role in hunting, right? They're much more agile. They've got a very distinct um, feature in the foot called the arctometatarsis. That's for your uh, vocab lesson of the day. Um, it's basically a pinching of the toe bones together in order to form a foot that is capable of turning at extremely um, sort of quick and uh, ma making short, quick turns, right? So a very agile animal. And then as they get older, they grow into this very differently shaped animal, much bulkier, much slower, um, but also able to cover very large distances. So in effect, we have, you know, two ecological roles being taken up by the same animal at different times of its life. Um, and if there happened to be basically a breakoff population that slows its adult growth to basically stay in that, um, what we would call pedomorphic, your, your juvenile state, stay in that form as an adult, like an axolotl, um, it's not unplausible. It's just, again, what's been studied so far does not point to that being the case. That is so interesting. I remember when you were talking, you brought back a bunch of memories from this book I read a few years ago, um, The Song of the Dodo. Uh, it talks about island biogeography and how diversity decreases, over, like ecological diversity decreases over time as one as invasive species propagate. So right. uh, what, the metaphor he used in the book, it was by David Quammen. The metaphor he used in the book is if you take a rug and you cut that rug into 34 different squares you don't have you cannot support the same diversity in the 34 separate squares as you could on the one large rug right various it's such an interesting book i recommend it to anyone but i've really enjoyed uh this conversation with you i learned a lot i hope those listening learned a lot too and i'd love to have you again for some more episodes in the future yeah um i'm always happy to talk about what i've learned i like trying to give my education away for free um it, it cost me a lot of time and also actual money in order to get this knowledge and um i don't think anyone else should have to go through that so i like i like giving it away as much as i possibly can i love that that's such a positive spin on it so i do an independent um science writing project on patreon called pt paleo um, that stands for the parent teacher guide to paleontology um, don't be scared away by the name if you're not a parent or a teacher um, it's basically just my way of conveying like this is not a book or a project for kids, you know, I actually, like I've been doing this whole time, I'm talking science. Um, and I, I, there's really, it puts so many limitations on me to grow as a scientist. If everything I output is basically cut down to a third grade reading level. Right. Um, and of all the parents and teachers that I've worked with as a scientist, people who are trying to train their own kids who are potentially getting into science. Um, they don't want to be talked down to, right? They have genuine questions that deserve real answers, like we're trying to give here. 
Um, and, you know, it's up to them basically to digest the real information to whatever is age appropriate because every kid is at a different stage. So it's impossible for me to accurately predict what every single kid's needs are going to be. Um, but I also wanted to make something um, through in this project that some, you know, a kid like I was growing up would also appreciate. Because um, in my formal schooling in, um, you know, my, my elementary school, my middle school, high school, in none of these places did I ever learn anything about paleontology. Um, and in fact, up until high school, very little about basic things like the weather and ecology and things like that, the environment, very limited amount of information. Um, I wasn't interested in like the student packet on dinosaurs. I wanted to read out of the teacher's book, right? I wanted to see what they were reading because um, that was the level I was interested in learning on. So um, if you have any interest in fossils, any interest in paleontology, um, modern ecology, modern diversity, climate, all of that stuff is stuff that I cover. Um, I publish research notes twice a week. Um, so if you only just like pretty pictures of fossils and things that I find out in the wild, um, that's there. Um, at other support tiers, you get to see my expeditions, like we were just talking about earlier in the show. Um, I spent two weeks in New Mexico, and I filmed a video of myself doing that work a little log of what was going on every single day. So there's 14 uh, episodes basically of that that can be unlocked right now if you go sign up. Um, and, and that's all that I'll plug. I humbly suggest you take a look at it because this work is very difficult. <laughs> and uh, as, as we talked about young scientists like myself, I'm, I'm 24. Um, it's, there's it's no way, difficult. no. No, because I'm older than that. That can't be real. No. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I just turned 24. I'm in that bridge between like, I just got my college degrees. I have to go to grad school, but that's such a difficult switch to make. Um, and there's all this like student debt, this like hollow pit that's opening up beneath all of us. And it's like, I, eh. so anyway, if you enjoy the work that I do, if you're interested in actually seeing the stuff I produce, great check that out but um yeah if you also just feel like taking mercy on me <laughs> that's one way to do it um and i would love to come back and, and talk more because these conversations always spin out you know just as many questions as they answer so i understand how that works yes like i had some questions pre-prepared but then the more we got talking i was just like i had to scramble to find a pen and i was like okay write this down <laughs> <laughs> because I had so many, but but I really did enjoy this. And for those of you listening, I do encourage you to check out the the Patreon and investigate that stuff and see it for yourself. Because this is very interesting stuff, and I will I will encourage you all to do that multiple times. And I'm, I hope Benjamin can come back and we can do some more because I really enjoyed sure. it. Thanks yeah. for having me, Mike. Yeah, thanks everyone for listening. All right, bye. See you around. <laughs>